Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com. Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself, my cat, if you just heard, and a guest, take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is John Pantakitis. John is a partner at Twin Focus Capital and serves as the chief investment officer and general counsel. In this role, he maintains a close working relationship with clients to help them design and expedite their investment strategies. He also leads the firm's research efforts to develop new and creative asset allocation policies, oversee due diligence for manager search and selection, and writes thought leadership commentary on global macroeconomic topics. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thank you, David, for having me uh, to talk about uh, what are very timely and exciting topics. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. And that very timely and exciting topic he just mentioned is the subject of this week's episode, Elon Musk, who, unusual for this show, is very much alive. Elon Musk is an entrepreneur and business magnate. He's the founder, CEO, and chief engineer at SpaceX, an early-stage investor, CEO, and product architect at Tesla, founder of The Boring Company, and co-founder of Neuralink and OpenAI. He also happens to be the richest person in the world as of November 2021, with a net worth of around $305 billion. Now, Musk's life is fertile ground for this show, not just because of his vast wealth and the nature of his holdings, but also because, among other things, his family is complexly blended. He's twice divorced and has six living children with two women, one of whom he never married. He's also very outspoken on social media about his thoughts on philanthropy. He's pledged to give at least half of his fortune to charity. However, his actions haven't quite lived up to that sentiment as he's donated roughly $200 to various charities, both through direct donation and his foundation, the Musk Foundation, which sounds like a lot and is, is about less than 1% of his net worth. However, the why of this discrepancy is actually pretty interesting and likely more complex than most would think. You see, I mentioned Musk's holdings earlier, and that's an important element. He's atypically illiquid for a billionaire. The vast majority of his wealth is in Tesla and SpaceX stock, and he's already tied up about half his Tesla stock as collateral for loans. So the act of giving for him is a fair bit more complex than simply cutting a check. So John, What meth lessons can advisors learn from Elon Musk when it comes to transferring wealth strategically to take care of family members and children while still making charitable donations that reflect clients' areas of interest? That's a loaded question, uh, David, especially for someone like Elon, whose fortune is staggering. And and it's complex because, like you said, 
the majority of his wealth are in two assets that are illiquid. Uh, you know, a couple of things that come to mind as you were describing him, divorce. And there, you know, the thing that we urge all of our clients are premarital agreements just to make sure that, you know, with people with wealth, when they do get married, they should have these premarital agreements to protect wealth and just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. The second thing I, I would, you know, to tell uh, Elon is that you can do great things with charitable vehicles like foundations, both on the income and on the estate and gifting side. That So I think he should probably be much more aggressive in giving to foundations and, and letting foundations serve certain purposes. You know, you read about him, he's got certain missions in life. He could probably give much more aggressively to foundations and do all those activities there in a, in a much more tax advantaged manner. And we know that, you know, through his through his things that he's said publicly that he is someone who is very interested in reducing or not paying taxes. So from that aspect, I would urge him to do a lot more with charitable vehicles. Let me pause and stop and see if you have any questions, but I can go on and on because these are loaded yeah, questions. Obviously, obviously, I threw you a giant question there, which is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's sort of try to break it down, I guess, a little bit piece by piece, right? You started off, the first yeah. thing you mentioned when you looked at this, the first thing that jumped into your mind was the idea of prenuptial agreements. You see those divorces and you think prenuptial agreements. Now, uh, in a lot of families and in a lot in a lot of societies, the prenuptial agreement is still, to this day, it's kind of a dirty word. So sure. when you have a client like this, not necessarily a, a billionaire, but just someone who's you know, has holdings and has had a divorce or two, how do you broach the topic with them of prenuptial agreements going forward if they haven't done them before? You have to be sort of blunt about these and let them know that, you know, this is something that you highly recommend. And we have had a, a handful of clients, you know, whatever we say, they say, you know, something is just not me. Uh, and in which case, what we try to do is protect assets as much as possible in terms of having assets and trust and that sort of thing. But regardless, you know, if you get married without a premarital agreement, you know, everything could be up for grabs. Uh, and that's something that we try to prevent just to, you know, so everyone can be on the same page. And again, they don't have to be adversarial. Uh, in fact, most of the premarital agreements that we help clients negotiate are not adversarial. So we, we try to take that stigma away early on. I, yeah, I think it's important, uh, you know, people hate to, they like to look at the marriage contract as, sure. you know, this uh, lifetime emotional bond, right? And it, of course, it is Correct. that. But in terms of the law and in terms of your finances, it's also very much a transaction. By getting married, you are accepting a bundle of rights. You are passing certain rights to one another, whether, you know, and that has, they're independent of, of your love for each other, right? They're, they're just connected to that Absolutely. for whatever reason in our legal system. So the idea of adding a, a prenuptial contract to that, you know, really shouldn't be as stigmatized as it is when, when you look at it just from the pure legal perspective. I fully agree with that, that it is very, you know, from the objective side of it, it is a very transactional type of uh, of thing. Uh, obviously, there's the subjective side, but, you know, you got to look objectively first. And we think that with clients with vast fortunes or with large, complex balance sheets, a premarital agreement is something that's definitely worth at least discussing uh, So in every situation. Moving on from these divorces, I guess, and now we see the next step, right, is that he has all of these children, right? Six children in this day and age mm -hmm. is a lot. 
Um, and also, I mean, it's grim to bring up, but maybe speaks to why he has six children is that he did have, uh, you know, he lost his very first one. He had, a, a, unfortunately, a stillborn child, um, which are just useful insights sometimes to have into a client's mind as to sort of why they're making the decisions they might make and to further, you know, kick things down the line in this conversation, potentially, like maybe what would influence their philanthropic uh, activities. But when you see six kids from different mothers, now what, what does your mind go to for a client? The, the next topic, you know, one of the topics that we always discuss with clients is how much of your fortune do you want to give to the next generation? And we find that for some clients, they want to give everything. For other clients, they want to give X amount. And for some clients, very few, they want to give very little because they want their, their, the next gen, their kids and grandkids to be productive uh, citizens. So that's the first topic. If you were a client, I would sit down with him and go over. To the extent that he wants to give uh, lots of money, transfer wealth to the next generation, then he's got, you know, given the size of his fortune, he's, you know, there's tools that we do to start transferring wealth to the next generation. And, 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 and again, given the size, I would say that he should mix charitable planning with the, the multi-generational planning here. And the earlier you do it, the more effective it becomes. So if he doesn't have one, to the extent that he doesn't have one, I would highly recommend that he start program trust and, 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 other, and other types of mechanisms to transfer wealth. So when you start looking at trust, is there, is there you know, when you see a client, is there a, a certain wealth point where you start to think, oh, a will is not enough to handle this? you know, the, the sort of generational planning that you mentioned, that I should bring in a trust? Or is a trust something that basically every client with means should have? The trust, especially clients like this, they must have. And there's lots and lots of different trusts. There's the re revocable trust and the revocable trust. And Elon should probably have both. Uh, in fact, he should have both. But well, when we mean when we're transferring wealth indefinitely, you're using irrevocable trust as one mechanism of literally giving to these entities to, to, to hold assets for the benefit of X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z being his kids and grandkids. Uh, the, the question is, how can you transfer assets into these vehicles in a tax-efficient manner? Because in the United States, there is a gift tax that we have to be aware of. And, you know, everything above a certain amount, you got to start paying 40% on that. But there are tools of doing that without having to pay a gift tax or paying much less. So that's something that he needs to be cognizant. I'm sure that he's doing it as we speak, um, transferring wealth. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned the, some of the philanthropic possibilities here and a lot of the conversation today actually about Elon Musk centers around his philanthropy. What are some of the, the, the ways that we mentioned sort of trying to pass the, on values and wealth to children by way of philanthropy? What are some of the techniques that are useful for clients to know about? Well, that's a great question. What we do with clients is the family unit, that is, matriarch, patriarch, kids, and, and, and grandkids. Is we use philanthropy to bring the family together, to teach them the family values, to teach them about uh, investing, prudent asset management, and that sort of thing. You know, we have what we call, with our clients, we have our annual summits, which usually involve during the summer, going to their, their summer homes where all the whole family is, is together there. And we talk about the family foundation and the assets in there and how we're investing the assets, whether it's 
through some sort of mission-related investment, that we talk about the grants that the families make and what charities that the families want to start giving to. And we see that that brings the family together. The kids get very involved in things that normally they would not be involved, whether it's what type of charities they want to give to or what type of investments they want to make in the foundation. And, And we just find that as an effective tool within the family office to bring families together. Yeah, I love this idea of uh, you know, using philanthropy almost as sort of an end around to get the generations, you know, to to connect. Because a lot of times, you know, your traditional family meeting, which is also an exceptionally useful tool, can be uh, almost a little adversarial, or where one side will be intimidated, or they'll just are so conditioned to listening to the older generation that it's not a full discourse. Whereas where you give them sort of a common context like philanthropy does and you can often get a much more natural and even discourse between the generations than you would from just throwing them in a room and saying hey let's talk about what the family's about let me give you another example we have one family we just took on it's a second marriage for both husband and wife they both have three kids from previous marriages the the kids are not uh from the two families they're not particularly close so we said let's have a family let's have a summer summit at their home in New Hampshire. We, we went there, all the kids were there, and we brought up philanthropy, and we suggested we each give each one of the, the, the family units, the, the, child, the six children, $25,000 budget. They can pick their, their, their organizations and give to them. And you can't believe what a positive outcome we've had. Now we have phone calls coming in and emails, and they want to get more involved, and all the kids now are talking to each other and what charities they're giving. It was such a success. I can't, I can't tell you how much value they got out of that one exercise. Yeah, philanthropy is really a good um, sort of catalyst for a lot of the sort of family values and family involvement issues that, that you run into. You know, be it preparing a child to be part of the family business or just teaching them about how money works or just teaching them how our family works. And even sometimes just sort of as therapy in a way where like a lot of times just this, the sort of conversations that that this that this conversation will then lead to just very naturally can sort of head off a lot of issues with the family before they become issues or something that they didn't know would become an issue because they didn't know they cared about until they sat down with each other and were talking about something else that eventually led them there. You're absolutely right. It, it just seems as though when people talk about philanthropy and doing good to an organization or people or something, it, the, the tone changes within the family. And if there was an adversarial uh, mood that, that sort of goes away they put that to the side and they start having different types of conversations and, and again we use that with our family office clients and we've got nothing but positive responses from that and then the next thing is you take that and then you, know, you start talking about family issues uh that may have been a problem before and now everyone is more connected you know those conversations get easier to have uh about yeah, that's, money that's a- and about Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. You know, those conversations of, you know, family topics become much easier now, having broken the ice with philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a drum that we've beaten on this show quite a lot, actually, is this idea of a lot of these estate planning and family, you know, inter-family conversations can be really hard to get started and really scary. And sort of, it's almost, you look at all the possibilities and it's like, how could we possibly cover every eventuality? But the reality is that like once you do do that super hard part of, of getting it started, it's like a mm-hmm. ball rolling downhill a lot of times with a lot of family and it leads to other conversations, which leads to other conversations and it spider webs out now that you've opened these lines of communication and the advisor doesn't necessarily have to be sitting there for all of them. They'll actually have them on their own now. 
Correct. And with Elon Musk, someone with his, you know, his wealth, the ability for him to give to charity and create foundations and, you know, his interest in investing in, you know, a lot of different things that might have a mission related component. You know, you can, you, you can use foundations not only to make grants, but to what we call program related investments, where it's like a social venture where the foundation isn't necessarily giving away money. It's investing money to certain organizations where the capital markets are just ignored or they're not, they don't have access to capital markets for whatever reason. You can use your foundation now as a tool to invest in these companies at low or no interest rates, whether it's a biotech company that makes medication for sub-Saharan Africa or, or something of, of, of that sort. There's that element now you can do on top of making charitable grants uh, that someone like an Elon Musk, we would urge him to do more and more of. So you know, we've been talking about foundations a little bit, and sort of I think uh, you know when you look at the two main, we talk about sort of larger scale philanthropy. You're sort Correct. of the two main vehicles, right? Are the, are the charitable foundation and the donor advised fund. When when do you think you know to use each there? What, what do you think of, the, of these two sort of respective That's vehicles? Excellent question, and let me give you several examples. In many, with most of our families, we use both and i'll tell you why especially for those families that want to maximize the tax deductibility and without getting into the intricacies of the tax law here uh, it's good to have both because the donor advised fund gives you a lot more limit uh, a lot less limitations on what you can deduct per year with charitable donations versus the foundation however the foundation does give you more flexibility in terms of the types of assets you can invest in, the types of organizations you can give to, whereas a donor advised fund does not. That said, donor advised fund like Fidelities and, and Schwab, they've realized that they're losing business to foundations because foundations do that do have that added flexibility. And they have started internally doing some of the things that foundations have been doing in terms of uh, a wider uh, array of uh, of organizations that they give to. For example, donor advised funds used to be only able to give to 501c3 organizations. Those are organizations registered with the IRS. Now there's, uh, you know, they have, they've opened those doors to, to do similar things with foundations. So we're, you know, the answer is we'd like to use both vehicles because they have different tax attributes that we'd like to take advantage of. Both have their pluses and minuses. That said, for a larger family, if I had to select just one, it would probably be, still would be the foundation. Even though the foundation has more complexities, it does have more utility for these families. That's very interesting. And it's also a pretty unique uh, point of view on, uh, as far as you know, people who've been on this show have uh, actually put forward. A lot, we talk about donor-advised funds and foundations a lot, and, and generally we're sort of beating the drum of donor-advised funds um, as just sort of like the common man's easier option. but. Correct. It's, it's great to have someone on here who is actually, you know, sort of almost rooting for the, even though you admit you use both, the sort of the, the, touting the, the assets and the values of the foundation side as well. Correct. I mean, I personally think for at least our families, they both serve, a, 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 it shouldn't be either or. In most cases, it's both because they both have benefits that we like to take advantage of. So as a family office and, and when you're dealing with high wealth and, and generally high wealth equals high profile families. How do you handle, how much of an element, I guess, is 
peer pressure, I guess, for lack of a better term, in terms of this philanthropic conversation. Be it, you know, in the case of Elon Musk, obviously, it's just he's very public and people on Twitter can just yell at him to give money to places or yell at him for not giving money. Whereas with a, a smaller family might be like, you know, oh, the Joneses are giving to this idea. Maybe we should give to this too. How much of that element of sort of expectation and public sort of knowledge of what you're doing plays into this philanthropic conversation when you're dealing with sort of higher profile families? It, it's funny you ask that. And that works both ways. And there is an element to like, if, if, if John Doe is giving money, then that means I should give money. Or what we find is uh, partners in a partnership or something, you know, like if one partner gives money that, you know, he'll say to his partner, can you give act to, to the organization I'm supporting and vice versa. So there is that element of, you know, you, you got to keep up with the Joneses, even in terms of philanthropy. That said, there's some families that are the exact opposite, that they want to keep philanthropy very secret in terms of who they give to, uh, and they don't want their names going out there. We have a handful of clients that are like that. The problem with foundations there is everything is disclosed on the, the, the foundation's tax return on the Form 990. Uh, and there, if that does become an issue, you know, what we, what we do is we take the family's foundation and we give the, a donation to the, the DAF, to the family's DAF, and the DAF turns around and makes a donation. So that's one example of where we use both for a certain situations. So the long short of it is there is the element of uh, social peer pressure. If one family is doing it and they're in you know, a close circle, you know, in cocktail parties, uh, you want to be able to say you're giving to X, Y, and Z as well. And for some families, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, I thought that Elon Musk was actually a really interesting uh, dichotomy about this exact same topic in a way, because you look at him and you look at sort of, obviously not all of his donations are public. We don't know where everything has gone. But if you sort of look at where the Musk Foundation gives to, it's very clear that he has a specific passion and mission in mind in terms of these sort of tech stocks, uh, artificial intelligence, education, like that's where a lot of that money gets funneled. But when you look at his sort of personal large donations that kind of make the news, they're very random. It seems like it's like whoever got through to him on Twitter and made him feel bad, you know, he's all of a sudden making these donations to like the Texas Food Bank or something for $10 million. So it's, he's like a very interesting sort of, he does both sides of it, right? Where you can see that there is a mission and a passion, but he's also under such intense pressure from outside that he's just kind of shooting money around also, which is great because it's at least going to charity. But sort of, it's very. It can be very. It can be overwhelming for someone who sort of is trying to do guided giving and actually like, you know, champion a cause. What we see is uh, for most clients, there's you know, if you look at their annual, the organizations they give to in the amounts, there's a handful of them. They're they're very large. They get like either it's the children's school or a religious organization or some philanthropy that they feel very close to and they give large amounts every year. And then there's like the 30, 40, 50, the 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 here and there thing. And those are where, you know, like the, the, you know, the partner or the, the neighbor next door says, you know, can you, can you give to my organization or something like that? And those are what that is. So you're, you're right there as well, that there's a bunch of random ones. And then there's the ones that they're close to, which is a, a common theme, even with our families. You're staying on this idea of a philanthropic mission. You mentioned earlier the sort of the exercise where you gave each of the kids $25,000 to invest how they want. Um, you know, it's a common thing that even with the most charitable families and even when they're very successful in, in passing on sort of the value of being philanthropically inclined to their children, 
the children may not end up being philanthropically inclined to the same causes that sort of the larger family is. Uh, how do you deal with that situation where maybe, you know, we have the X Foundation is devoted to AIDS research and the, the kid only cares about LGBTQ issues. So, you know, everyone is equally philanthropic, but the goals don't necessarily um, mesh up anymore. That's a good question. And there what we do is, and usually that is the case. Uh, and we like to keep the mission of the foundation as broad as possible. And again, and again the reason we have these, these sort of family philanthropic summits is to be all-inclusive, in which case the matriarch and patriarch, they have to be flexible in terms of uh, allowing different family members different missions because uh, everyone has an opinion everyone has a different mission that they're after and you know most often it's it's more normal to see the different children having different missions than it is everyone having a common theme and that said though you know it's not uncommon for the, you know, the family has two or three dominant themes, whether it's the environment or whether it's uh, climate change or, 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 or animals or, or that sort of thing. And, and then they have a bunch of other unique missions that, you know, individual family members like to go after. So you can have that flexibility as well. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that's like, it sounds like a silly problem almost when you first bring it up, but sort of as in the past, like in just in this episode, we've used the film, the family foundation as sort of like a vague analog for a family business. And, you know, in the same way that a child can be sort of pressured into and stuck in the family business, they can kind of be pressured into and stuck with the family foundation and the cause they don't care about if they're not careful. What we usually do is one of the first things we do when we have these family summits and we start a foundation is we create a mission, the foundation's mission statement. And that's where that, that, that's a conversation that's collaborative. It's everyone has an input. And at the end, you know, we pick two or three of the dominant uh, missions that everyone sort of agrees to. And then we have, uh, you know, at the end, a very general statement that, you know, the foundation can also pursue other uh, charitable and philanthropic uh, missions. So, you know, we, we do provide that flexibility. But early on, we try to focus or make the mission of the, that particular foundation more narrow by finding some consensus among family members. Interesting. So, John, we're just about out of time. So I'm going to just throw one at you here. This is a sort of a big topic that we've covered today, a lot of ground. Um, but if, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, if you have a client who's coming in and they have done no philanthropy before on, on, on a larger scale, and they ask you, well, where do I start? Or what's the first thing you tell them? That, that's, a, that's a difficult question. It's not an easy question. And the answer is that first and foremost, when we, you know, with family office clients, the first thing I do is tell me your balance sheet, tell me your income statement, tell me your object, your, your multi-generational objectives, and philanthropy is just one component of that. For me to do justice and give you a precise answer as to how I would structure your, your philanthropic program in terms of size, in terms of the vehicles to use, it's really a critical function of everything else. The balance sheet, the family balance sheet being the predominant thing that we like to look at at Twin Focus in terms of guiding everything else, whether it's the multi-generational aspect, the philanthropic aspect, uh, the, the business aspect, it, it, it's, it's a difficult question to answer without knowing more information about the family. 
Well, that's about all the time we have for today, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, John Pantakitis, for being great and really tackling sort of a very broad and, and difficult subject. Thanks so much for coming on, John. Thank you very much, David, for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com.